Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So, do you remember what caused the National Guard to show up in Minneapolis after George Floyd was murdered by the police there and people started coming out in the streets and protesting? It was during a protest, somebody firing a gun into the police department while there were people inside the police department. That provoked the National Guard. What provoked the breaking of windows? That was a guy smashing windows, they called him Umbrella Man, with a crowbar or a baton of some kind at an auto parts store. We learned a few weeks ago, maybe, maybe even longer than that, that Umbrella Man, the guy who was smashing the windows, who started the whole looting thing, was a right-wing provocateur. And now we've discovered who the guy is who was shooting into the police station. This by uh, Andy Mannix over at the Star Tribune, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. In the wake of the protest following the May 25th killing of George Floyd, a member of the Boogaloo Boys opened fire on Minneapolis Police 3rd Precinct with an AK-47-style rifle and then screamed, Justice for Floyd, as he ran away. And keep in mind, this is a white guy who wants to start a race war in America, a racially-based civil war. He's 26 years old. He's from Bourne, Texas. He went all the way from Texas to Minneapolis to try to start his war. This was on May 27 and May 28. According to charges, he was wearing a skull mask and tactical gear. He shot 13 rounds at the South Minneapolis Police Headquarters while people were inside. He also looted and helped set the police building on fire which caused Governor Tim Walz to activate the Minnesota National Guard. And everything kind of went downhill from there, which is exactly why this guy did this. His name is Ivan Harrison Hunter. Two hours after the police precinct was set on fire, Hunter texted with another Boogaloo member in California, a man by the name of Stephen Carrillo. Now, I'm giving their names because there's a storyline here that you need to follow. So Hunter... Sets fire to the police department, fires 13 rounds into it with an AK-47. And then he sends a text message to Stephen Carrillo in California and says, go for police buildings. And Carrillo replies saying, I did better, LOL, laugh out loud. Because three hours before Carrillo got this text message from Hunter, Hunter having just fired into the police building in Minneapolis, three hours before he got that text message, Carrillo had just shot and killed a federal police officer in Oakland, California, a protective services officer. And then five days after this, Carrillo shot and killed a sheriff's deputy in Santa Cruz when people were trying to arrest him. And then he stole a car and wrote Boog on the hood of it in his own blood. But it gets worse. So Hunter, who's corresponding with this guy Carrillo in California, among others, goes back to Texas 
after shooting up the police station in Minneapolis. Because, you know, he's a white guy. Nobody's going to suspect him of anything. He can get on a plane. He can drive anywhere he wants. The police don't stop him. He goes down to Texas and the uh, police pull over his truck because there's three guys in it along with him wearing tactical gear and carrying guns. And they thought, hmm, maybe we should check these guys out. Hunter was in the front passenger seat. He had six loaded banana magazines for an AK-47 in his tactical vest. The officers found an AK-47 style rifle, two AR-15 rifles in the rear seat of the vehicle, a pistol next to the driver's seat, and another pistol in the center console. On Facebook, Hunter, the guy who shot into the Minneapolis Police Department and basically started, Trump is running around going, oh my God, look at this, they're setting police stations on fire, they're, they're firing at the cops. They're... It was the right wing domestic terrorists doing this. The white guys. On Facebook, which has become a cesspool of right wing hate and conspiracy theory, I mean, it was just last week, or maybe the week before, that Zuckerberg finally said, okay, no more Holocaust denying. Really? For years, Facebook has been nurturing these guys. And Hunter on Facebook wrote, I helped the community burn down that police station. I didn't protest peacefully, dude. Want something to change? Start risking felonies for what is good. And then he says, the BLM protesters in Minneapolis loved me. He referred to himself as a terrorist. He is the third member of the Boogaloo Boys to be charged in Minneapolis, just in Minneapolis. Meanwhile, there's a new guy who, uh, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse went up to Wisconsin, right winger from Illinois. His mother drove him up to Wisconsin with his AK-47 or AR-15 or whatever it was, so that he could kill a couple of people, which he did. I shouldn't say so that. I doubt his mother thought that he was going to kill people. What do you think when your kid is going with an assault weapon to a protest? But in any case, there's a new guy who's going to be fundraising and asking for money online among, you know, Trump supporters. And this guy's name is Treisman, Alexander Hillel Treisman. And he was arrested in North Carolina in a van carrying four rifles, a handgun, an explosive, and a bomb-making manual. He also had over half a million dollars in cash. Huh? Half a million dollars in cash? And why did they arrest him? Because he had just posted online, should I kill Joe Biden? Question mark. Back in May... Treisman, this guy was in Joe Biden's neighborhood. He was eating at a Wendy's within four miles of Biden's home while conducting a search for Biden's address. This is from Mark Sumner over at the Daily Kos. The title is Plot That Brought Would-Be Assassins to Biden's Revealed as List of Violent Threats Grows Longer. After he was at Biden's place, he went up to New Hampshire and stopped at a gun store to buy a new AR-15 and inquire about night vision goggles. But even more recently than that, last Wednesday, 41-year-old James Dale Reed was arrested after threatening to kidnap and kill both Biden and Kamala Harris. He was arrested because he had given someone a note who had a Biden sign in their yard. We are the ones with those scary guns. We are the ones your children have nightmares about. You'll recall just two years ago, Caesar Sayoc, another, these are all Trump fans, right? Another Trump fan, this guy living in a white van down in Florida, was arrested after sending 16 bombs to people that he thought were critics of Donald Trump, including one to Joe Biden and one to Kamala Harris. He was sentenced the same week that Patrick Crucius drove to the El Paso Walmart and killed 22 Hispanic people. And that same week, also, Connor Betts killed nine people in Dayton, Ohio, after leaving a Twitter message that said, quote, millennials have a message for the Joe Biden generation. Hurry up and die. I don't think any of this stuff is getting anywhere near enough attention in the press. Now, I get it. The, the corporate media, the mainstream media is the story that they're running off. 
And, you know, and I remember being in the news back in the late 60s and early 70s when we were asked by the IRS and the local state police not to cover an anti-tax protest. I get it that the media doesn't want to encourage this by talking about it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. But how can you address it, challenge it, and solve this problem if we don't discuss it? Talking about the United States of War in this hour, Professor David Vine, uh, to kick us off here, he's a professor with the Department of Anthropology at American University, the author of a brand new book, The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. David S. Vine, by the way, is, uh, is Professor Vine's Twitter handle if you want to reach out to him. Professor Vine, how would you characterize the United States' relationship to war compared to most other developed nations? best comparison is probably to compare the United States to other empires. One of the things that was a surprise to me when I started my research was that the past 19 years of war in which the United States has been fighting continuously since the U.S. military invaded Afghanistan in October 2001 is not exceptional in U.S. history. That if you look at the whole scope of U.S. history, the U.S. military has been fighting in all but 11 years of U.S. history in some form of war or other combat. And that's about 95% of the years in U.S. history. Uh, in recent years, though, I think it, it is probably the best comparison to get the U.S. track record when it comes to war. Increasing people frighteningly talking about a, a war between the United States and China or a growing Cold War with China. China last fought a war outside its borders uh, in 1979. The book is far from an argument in, in, in favor of Chinese foreign policy or, or, or anything about China. The, the book is really looking carefully at why the United States government has so consistently sent its military to fight in foreign lands. And ultimately, I, I hope the book makes some contribution to making U.S. foreign policy a far more peaceful endeavor. Well, I know in my lifetime, I was a little kid when Dwight Eisenhower called out the military-industrial complex. There's money to be made in war. That's obviously, you know, an incentive for the United States to go to war, or at least to prepare for war. And military-industrial complex is, is no uh, slouch when it comes to lobbying. Then also you've got presidents who think that being a wartime president, George W. Bush made this comment to Mickey Herskowitz, his biographer that his parents had hired to ghostwrite his autobiography of Charge to Keep. This is in 1999, a year before he was nominated to run for president. And he said, if I become president, I'm going to have a war in Iraq and it's not going to last three days like my dad did. He blew his political capital. I'm going to have a war that lasts until the next election so I can get reelected, which he did. And Donald Trump, on multiple occasions, when Barack Obama was running for re-election in 2012, tweeted that he was expecting Obama to start a war at any moment because that's how American presidents get re-elected. So those are two clear forces. I'm lacking a word here, you know, but things that would incline us toward war, I suppose, internally. What else is there? Well, I think you pointed to two of the big ones, that economic and political interests are, are have been major drivers behind this history of war, both recent wars and the whole long history of, of U.S. wars, the military-industrial complex in particular that President Eisenhower warned us against as he was leaving office has only grown in power since the time of Eisenhower and really has taken on sort of Dr. Strange Levian significance and power. Just look at the size of the U.S. military budget now, around $740 billion a year. Uh, and what are the threats that face us today? They are nothing like that facing us during the Cold War when there was another empire, the Soviet Union, facing off against the U.S. government. Meanwhile, our military budget has reached the heights of the, the Cold War. Indeed, there are you know, politicians, frighteningly, both before when they're running for president and when they are in office, see the power of war in the U.S.-American psyche. Um, they see the political advantage to be gained from, from launching wars, which, again, is a, a long, much longer-term pattern. Uh, I think we also have to pay attention to the role of, of race and racism, that if you look at the pattern of war, the U.S. military has been invading the lands almost exclusively of people of color around the world. 
And racism, you can see, is a clear through line from the earliest wars against Native American peoples to the peoples in Afghanistan and Iraq. And if you just look at the, the kinds of slurs that Sadly, U.S. military personnel frequently use to describe Iraqis or Afghans. They are eerily familiar and, and similar to, to those used against Native American peoples, to those used against Filipinos during the, the war between 1899 and 1913. So racism, um, as well as uh, gender and the desire to sort of demonstrate one's masculinity, are other really critical factors in explaining this long pattern of war. Do you recall what the Pentagon budget was at the end of the Clinton administration? My recollection was it was uh, around $350 billion. It was about half of what it is now. Am I remembering right? At the end of the Cold War, there was a call for a, a peace dividend, and there were some significant reductions in the size of the military budget and the number of U.S. military bases abroad. But basically, the system of war continued after the Cold War. There was no structural transformation. It just sort of shrunk a bit in size, but the basic structure of war, including the general power of the military-industrial complex, remained in place. And that, I think, is part of what needs to change now, and uh, beginning with people in the United States demanding a peace dividend again. Uh, I think we only need to look at the COVID pandemic to see that all this spending, literally trillions of dollars spent on war since 2001, $6.4 trillion on the war on terror since 2001, has not protected us against COVID, has not protected us against pandemics. Our priorities have been totally out of whack with the needs of, of people in the United States and around the world. And the threats that we're facing. I believe it was in the Financial Times, there was a piece about how China is leaking news about how they're building up their military forces on the parts of their coast that face Taiwan and that they may be anticipating a military incursion in Taiwan. And I'm reading this wondering, what does this mean for U.S. foreign policy? It sounds, given this context, it might be another opportunity to ramp things up. What can we do? What can the average American do to try to stop this madness? Well, I think we have down? to demand. Yeah, I think we have to demand our money back. We have to stop what you know Eisenhower described as the theft of our money and the, the allocation of our tax dollars to the military, to the military-industrial complex and to redirect money toward taking care of, of the real threats that, that face us and the real human needs when it comes to our education, our health care, while demanding that U.S. leaders not lead us into yet another war with anyone, least of all China. Yeah, I'm with you. Professor David Vine with the uh, Department of Anthropology at American University's new book, The United States of War, a Global History of America's Endless Conflicts from Columbus to the Islamic State. It's brilliant. David Fine, thank you so much for dropping by. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is by N.B. Turner. It's titled, Is China an Imperialist Country? And it's from a relatively Marxist point of view. I think you'll find it fascinating. This is from the introduction. It has long been known and understood that the entire world has been under the control of capitalist imperialism. For a time, a section of this world broke from it, beginning with the victory of socialism in Russia and continuing through the Chinese Revolution, constituting a socialist world. Yet in time, the socialist countries, through internal class struggles in politics and economics, were seized by capitalist conciliators and advocates, and then by capitalists themselves, who were largely within the ruling communist parties themselves. First in Russia and later in China, when these counter-revolutions and coups took place, there ensued a period of entry and integration into the world imperialist system. The Soviet Union, at first under the existing signboard of socialism, continued much of its established national and economic power relations into a new socialist-imperialist bloc, socialist in name, imperialist in reality. The Russian capitalist imperialist attempt to maintain this bloc, or important sections of what had been part of this bloc and its historic allies, has continued in the years since the socialist signboard was discarded. In China, the defeat of the proletariat and the capitalist capture of state power after the death of the great revolutionary Mao Zedong have also led to a period of integration into the world imperialist system. China still operates under a socialist signboard, but has conducted itself unambiguously as a capitalist power. Before the last decade, especially since the demise of the socialist bloc, the U.S. was commonly seen as the sole superpower to which all other powers had to defer. The system which the U.S. had designed at the end of World War II was global in scope and to some more democratic in appearance than the old colonial empires. 
but it was built around the elitist privilege of power and authority, meaning the U.S. as superpower was at the centerpiece of their controls. But in the last decade, the imperialist world system is not what it used to be. Throughout the world, corrupt and comprador regimes have faced significant and often unprecedented mass popular opposition movements, which have revealed the deep instability of the old neo-colonialist arrangements. Even in the EU, the product of imperialist designs to supplant the historic internecine battles, there has emerged ever-deepening crises and conflicts and movements to assert nationalist interests against one another. Against the threat of Islamic fundamentalism, the imperialist system, as directed by the U.S., has launched wars such as in Iraq and Afghanistan at huge cost, trillions of dollars, and immeasurable losses in political credibility and imperialist authority, as neither war has won any of the U.S.'s objectives. These clear failures at the hand of the largest and most powerful military force in the world do not bode well for maintaining the U.S.'s hegemonic domination of the world's imperialist system. And the economic and financial crises of the last half decade or more have stirred not only deep discontent, resentment, and popular political opposition within the ranks of the U.S.'s reliable allies, but it has brought to the fore the imperialist anti-U.S. challenges from other major powers, specifically China and Russia. Forces worldwide are studying these changes and considering how they must change the set of options at hand. The all-too-prevalent view that U.S. imperialism is so powerful, so dominant, and so capable of manipulating all manner of forces and bending them to its will has been, and continues to be, a dangerous twisting of reality. The sole superpower in this view has been attributed with omnipotent features that defy effective challenge, that reflect a supposedly skillful control of contradictions and crises that afflicted earlier empires, and that has a boundless ability to disguise its malevolent work. If it were true, it would be a remarkable development in human history. Indeed, it would be as once touted in the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union in bloc by Francis Fukuyama, the end of history. That is, the end of historical conflict and systemic changes. It would be an expression of the boastful and fanciful capitalist post-Mao motto, Tina, there is no alternative to capitalism. There are others who assert that the U.S. is not so omnipotent and that it is in decline and maybe failing, but that the U.S. and its close allies constitute the only imperialism that matters and that if all its detractors, victims, opponents, and its imperialist rivals band together, Liberation will truly be achieved with the demise of U.S. imperialism. This view also holds that whenever big powers like China or Russia rise in opposition to the U.S., they deserve the support and applause from progressive and revolutionary forces. Holding this view are a variety of forces who cling to the notion that the Cold War division of the world is still extant and that popular protests in recent years from Libya to Syria, Ukraine and Venezuela, as well as Brazil and Turkey, Iran, even inside Western China, are all examples of U.S. meddling and desperate interference. This view holds that without such U.S. manipulation and interference and disruption, the people would, by and large, be happy or passive. This is by any measure an amazing claim, denying the existence of class contradictions and struggles within each of these countries, and making it appear that the conspiratorial powers of the U.S. to manipulate events are unparalleled in reach and effectiveness. In practical political terms, this view distorts the basic reality that many regimes, bourgeois states that usually evoke one ethnic or religious or nationalist section of the people over others, aim to repress the sharpening class struggle and broad discontent and rebellion. The book N.B. Turner's Is China an Imperialist Country? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Dave, you wanted to put a punctuation mark on our conversation about endless war with Dr. Vine? Yeah, for one thing, I just want to compliment you on getting Dr. Vine on there. I have never heard, you know, someone that's interested in this topic bring up the topic of racism when it comes to warfare. I mean, that's deep and it's it's controversial, right? Oh, but, it's very um, real. It's very real. I mean, you know, during Vietnam, it was all we, there were all those words. I'm not going to say any of them on the air, but all those words to describe Vietnamese and in Afghanistan and, and Iraq, you know, it's raghead and, and other slurs that I'd rather not say on the air. I remember my dad, you know, who straight out of high school joined the army to go fight in World War Two. And to his dying days, he referred to Japanese as Japs and Germans as Krauts, which are not 
quite as racist as a lot of the other phrases that were used. But I mean, you know, this is just anyway, back to you, Dave. Sorry. Most people assume that it's a necessity to dehumanize your enemy in order to do your job because part of your job is killing, you know. <laughs> so the exactly. you know, and they think that's a necessity to dehumanize, but it's not really. And but that's not the reason why I called. I have put a lot of thought into this. All right, my 25 years of military service. I mean, I became very disenchanted under uh, George W. Bush administration because I, I noticed these wars were getting. Um, there's so much incentive to do war. I mean, there's so much monetary incentive, and our economy has been slowly and rigorously just declining. And um, so here's what I, you know, you can't really be anti-war. Like, you know, God bless you, you know, Tom, you were anti-war. You can't really be like that anymore because, um, you know, like in your face with the anti-war message. Because, uh, number one, like I said, the incentive and, and then number two is, you know, you're going to seem weak. That's how they're going to portray it, like they're doing with the defund the police movement. It's all weakness. And we don't want to make America weak. But here's the thing. I think everyone will buy off on this. What we have to do is we have to get rid of the redundancy. Like, for instance, we have a CIA and a DIA. Both of those things are redundant. And the reason why they're redundant is because there's such a monetary incentive. And then we need to shift things back from the free market contractor realm back into the military. Like, for instance, there's no reason why the Army, the Navy, the Air Force, and the Marines couldn't have a barber. You could have barbers. I mean, they used to years ago. Now, the problem with that... Well, the problem with that is, is it's going to seem, you know, they're going to say socialism, socialism, socialism. But look, Tom, you know, you always say it so correctly. The most socialist organization in the, in the United States is the military. And, you know, it goes yeah. all the way back to the only, you know, single payer plan we had was Champus with health care. And it worked great. Contractors oh, George in. Washington put one into place. George Washington ordered the vaccination of everybody in the in the American military during the Revolutionary War. And then once he became president, they created the first single payer health care system for for sailors, including civilian sailors, merchant marines. I mean, you know, it's like so there's a history here. It's a real quick story. Back in the 80s, when Lamar Waldron and I were working on these two books on Kennedy assassination that we published, Legacy of Secrecy is the main one. I interviewed, I, we tracked down and I interviewed a fellow by the name of Harry Enrique Ruiz Williams, who was one of the two commanders of the Bay of Pigs invasion. And that invasion was a disaster. But Harry had worked out a deal with a fellow by the name of Juan Almeida, who was the head of the Cuban military, who was going to, if we could just get somebody in to assassinate Castro, Almeida was going to lead a military coup and take over Cuba on behalf of the United States. After Jack was assassinated... Harry went into, along with Bobby, Bobby was funding this thing, and Bobby had helped put this thing together. Harry and Bob, and Harry told me this story personally. We, we had dinner together, and, and he, he had had a few drinks. And Harry and Bobby went into Lyndon Johnson's office. This was like just a, a month or so after the Kennedy assassination. And said, we still have this operation in place. Commander Almeida is still the head of the military in Cuba. He is still willing to overthrow Castro. And we still have agents inside Cuba. We can do this the right way if you'll just give the authorization. And Johnson, having gotten burned, you know, having Kennedy, having gotten burned with the Bay of Pigs invasion, just went into this loud, obscene tirade about Cuba and Cubans and how he didn't want to have anything to do with it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then he ended this by saying to Harry and to Bobby Kennedy, saying, I'm going to make my stand against communism as far the hell away as I can get. I'm going to do it in effing Vietnam. I don't want to be fighting communists in Cuba. I'll do it in Vietnam to get my anti-communist credentials if that's what I have to do. And he did. And that led directly to our involvement in Vietnam and, and, you know, by the escalation of it. And it was all because Johnson was afraid that the Republicans of that time we're going to criticize him for being soft on communism. I mean, that's, you know, and, and 57,000 Americans and 2 million Vietnamese died as a result of that. That's how bizarre our foreign policy has become. Absolutely bizarre. Now, all you really have to do is substitute the communist scare, the red scare, 
with Islam scare and Islamophobia. I mean, it's not rational, Tom. I'm telling you. I mean, I, I could talk about it for hours. I could write a book on it, but it is completely not rational. And you might even say, well, who cares? You know, you're a devout Christian or whatever. You should be anti-Islam. Right, but you shouldn't, you know, advocate killing and toppling governments and, 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 and right. forming um, an empire because, you know what? To be quite honest with you, it's way, way too expensive. All right, and, and I don't even care what Donald Trump says. I mean, look, um, he, he was railing on on a uh, Islamic terror incident in Paris over the weekend to the joy and ecstasy of his his followers, and also, you know, he, he you know, Russia's in Venezuela for crying out loud. I mean, he's not putting Russia or anybody in check. He's made Russia world power again. When does the madness end? Well, I think when the people who are sane start stepping up. That's us. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. On the line with us is Professor Jared Yates Sexton, a writer and political analyst. He has a new book out. It's called American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People. The website, jysexton.com, and also that's the Twitter handle. Professor Jared Yates Sexton, welcome to the program. Tell us about American rule. How, how did we conquer the world and fail our own people? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. I would say that what we've seen with America, particularly in the 20th century, is we saw this idea that the United States was on some sort of ordained mission that somehow or another we were the the heroes of history and you know godly saviors of democracy but in truth that idea was a really well constructed and purposeful illusion and propaganda technique that hid a lot of really ugly behaviors and control mechanisms that made sure that there was systemic inequality and kept common people and regular people from troubling the power structure that was both wealthy and influential in nature. I'm assuming in your analysis there has been an ebb and flow to this throughout the 240-year history of this country? 
Well, it began with a really intentional construction. The Constitution and the framers were specifically focused on making sure that America was in the hands of the wealthy and powerful few. If you actually go back and look at the notes from James Madison, what you find is that the framers were really distrustful of common people to the point that Benjamin Franklin had to remind them that they had helped fight the revolution. So from the beginning, of course, we have that aristocratic control and white supremacy in our laws. And it's really only strengthened over time. We've had a couple of moments where the mythology has been troubled, of course, most famously with the Civil War in the 19th century. But now we face with Donald Trump and the rise of Trumpism, we face another test of that mythology and a moment where it's starting to flicker a little bit. And that makes it inherently dangerous. You know, other nations around the world took what you're describing as the American mythology, implemented it in ways that seemed to work much better for their people. I'm thinking, for example, of the Scandinavian countries, but not exclusively. You know, I think we just saw this in Bolivia. What lessons can we learn from people who learned their lessons from us? Well, one of the problems with the the American experiment is that from the very beginning, it's been touched off with this idea of divinity. On the American right, and this, of course, took hold during the Reagan years, there's this idea that America was a shining city on the hill that was chosen by God to carry out his will. The problem is when you start viewing it through a political and civic religious lens, all of a sudden the country becomes unimpeachable. It becomes unquestionable. And to even criticize or even talk about the possibility of improving the nation is tantamount to heresy. The problem is that much of American history and politics has been taken over by this religious view of America, which makes it nearly impossible to really question the structure or to even try and reform it. So what's your suggested solution? Well, I think first and foremost that we have to look back on our history and understand the truth in it. I mean, I think there's a reason why Donald Trump is spending a lot of time on the campaign trail talking about patriotic education and making sure that the founding fathers are treated almost as if they're saints and that America has been good from its very beginning. I think once we start troubling these mythologies and we start dealing with where we've come from, we can understand where we are, why particularly we are you know, drowning in conspiracy theories and these anti-democratic movements. And I think that once we understand our past, we can start to chart a future that is actually more real, more human, and better for everybody involved. Do you see any models for moving America forward in the direction of Well, first of all, I'm assuming that you see some value in the mythology itself. In other words, if it was real, it would have been good. And if that's the case, are there examples around the world that we could emulate or lessons that we could learn to actually fulfill that mythology or that promise or that ideal? Well, I think one of the main problems is that there's a massive division between the rhetoric and the idea of like the Declaration of Independence, which, of course, is based on inalienable rights and liberty and freedom and equality and the Constitution. No, I'm asking you about today. Oh, for sure. I think that we can look at the possibility that because America has fallen under these spells, that it's led to movements like Trumpism. And I think that we need to take a look at how we've been misled and and look at other countries that have sort of risen in power, such as Great Britain, of course, which during the the British Empire was you know the, the biggest empire and the biggest influence over the world. And eventually they moved away from trying to control other countries through colonialism or military matters, and they started turning more in on themselves talking about things like health care and protections for workers and individuals. So I think there is a way out of this problem, but I think it starts with taking a look at our history and where that mythology has fallen short. So at the end of World War II, with the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the, and the really consequential beginning of the collapse of the, of the British Empire, and then you know to the, to the full collapse of it, uh, maybe the collapse isn't the right word, but you know, pulling out of uh, African countries that they had occupied and whatnot and and changing the nature of their relationship with, you know, dependent states like Canada and Australia in the 1950s and 60s. You know, Britain basically said, okay, that empire thing, that was, you know, it was a good run for 100 years but or longer, but we're not going to do that anymore. We're just going to become a country that takes care of ourselves and our people, but we'll also be a good neighbor to everybody else. Is that the sort of thing that you're suggesting for the United States? 
I think that that is probably one of the best ways forward. I think particularly at the beginning of the 21st century, with things like the Iraq War and the so-called War on Terrorism, we found ourselves in more and more countries, dozens of countries, running military operations, undercover operations, with our bases everywhere. And the military-industrial complex, of course, focused on maintaining American hegemony and you know dominance of interest. I think when we take a look at like what you're talking about with the British Empire, starting to realize that they could become part of an international alliance, they could work with their neighbors and not necessarily have to control other populations. I think that's a really exemplary example. I think that's a pretty good idea of what we probably need to look at. So we have over 700 military bases outside the United States around the world. Where do we begin? Is there a framework for deconstructing empire? Are there lessons to be learned from the British experience? One of the things that we have to take a look at is where we put our resources and where we put our energy. I think like a lot of people, I think that we need to take it away from projecting our power abroad and bring it home. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why human projects in America aren't pursued, why we don't have health care, why our infrastructure is crumbling. I mean, with the pandemic and, of course, with economic crisis and hurricanes and, and wildfires out west, we see that we are increasingly unable to meet these moments. And I think if we stop projecting the power and trying to control people outside of ourselves, which inevitably always blows back in our face and leads to unintended consequences, if we start bringing the resources home and the focus home and trust that the world will not go haywire simply because we're not controlling it, I think that Americans and actually people abroad as well could live better, longer lives. Yeah, look at the history of Iraq, of Iran, of Vietnam. <laughs> it just goes on and on and on. <laughs> Professor Jared Yates Sexton, the new book is American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. JYSexton.com is the uh, website for the book, and JY Sexton is his Twitter handle. Professor Sexton, thanks for dropping by. It's good talking with you. And good luck Thank with the book. Much. Did you know that Ronald Reagan committed treason to become president in 1980 and George Herbert Walker Bush was in on it and he avoided being prosecuted for this in 1992 with a little help from Bill Barr? It's on page 116 of my book, The Hidden History of the Supreme Court and the Betrayal of America. Maggie in Cold Springs, Minnesota. Hey, Maggie, what's on your mind today? The uh, Minneapolis Star Tribune article that you were reading about after the George Floyd protests. And Mm -hmm. this is something that certainly after the white supremacists, anarchists burned down the Minneapolis 3rd Police Precinct, and I watched it on TV with my own eyes, and I was thinking, isn't that surprising? It's a bunch of young white men throwing these Mm -hmm. small house cocktails and such. And by Saturday, the 30th of May, Governor Waltz and the FBI and law enforcement had figured out that that's what was going on. At first, they were, you know, decoyed. And really, for weeks after that, um, the people of Minneapolis and St. Paul were living in terror because these white supremacists would go and hide, like, water bottles of gasoline in different neighborhoods around the cities and then wait till night Mm. to slip in and set things on fire. And it's been long the, for a long time since early June, Attorney General William Barr and Donald Trump have keep trying to push this Antifa fake story, basically, because as FBI Director Christopher Wray said at the same press conference that A.G. Barr said about Antifa, Christopher Ray said this is just mainly a, a group or a thought of a social group of people, or not even a group. It's not yeah, it's short for anti-fascist. You know, it's not exactly. it's not a club or a group that actually has a membership roster. Although, you know, Trump and Barr, you know, they're they're just lying through their teeth about this stuff. But and, uh, and, yeah. And Maggie, yeah, thank and, you for your perspective from Minnesota. Go ahead. Yes. And I wanted to say that I was watching all night long, every night long. And and I saw a lot of these white supremacists on the TV, even when the reporters weren't aware that that's exactly. And they look just like the ones who were burning yeah, down. the. I, I think. Thing. 
I think people in Minnesota were figuring it out. Maggie, thank you. So we've got a new video up over at TomHartman.com, and it's about exactly why rich people, I'm talking about people who make more than a million dollars a year marginally, and over $3 million a year, you know, that, that group totally. Why this group of people who are multi-multi-millionaires and are making, literally bringing into the house over a million dollars a year and over $3 million a year, why would they want to destroy Obamacare? Turns out there's a very simple answer and a very straightforward answer and a rather shocking answer that they would put all this time and effort, years of work, into trying to kill Obamacare and throw 20, 30, 40,000 people, million people, excuse me, off their health care. And you can see it, hear it, read all about it, as it were, over at TomHartman.com. Tom Harbin here with you, and let's see here, Greg in Maple Valley, Washington. Hey, Greg, what's up? My concern, especially lately, has been that there's been an increasing use, even in the mainstream media, of the word militia to describe what is simply armed vigilantism. Or gangs. Yeah, and it's a slippery slope that we have begun down, and it seems like we're slipping down that slope even more rapidly in the last few weeks, because I've heard the term militia used to describe armed vigilante groups, no other thing to call them. Yeah, the media is not doing a decent job with this. It's doing a terrible, and, and I'll own my piece of it, because this use of the word militia is so ubiquitous, I've used it to describe these guys repeatedly. And yeah, I'm having to intentionally, like, catch myself and say, wait a minute, these are not militias. The National Guard is a militia. These are right. gangs. Pure and simple. They're gangs. You know, it's uh-huh. like MS-13, only these are white guy gangs. I mean, let's just call them what they are. They are proto-fascist domestic terrorists. It's just that simple, and it really needs to be considered as being that simple. So, yeah, spot on. John in Seattle. Hey, John, what's up? Thanks, Tom. I live in King County, and I can track my uh, my ballot online, and I know that my ballot has already been counted. I'm an occasional volunteer for Sightline Institute, which among its projects has a democracy project to uh, suggest ways that make it easier for people to vote. And on October 23rd, they posted an article recommending that ballot tracking in Oregon and Washington be statewide. Apparently, it's done in Seattle because Seattle is a richer city, but it's not done across the state. And they talk about five other states that do have comprehensive tracking and uh, suggest that Oregon and Washington should uh, implement that, too. That would be a really good idea. And, and, you know, these are the ways that we expand democracy in the United States after the election. Mayor in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Hey, Mayor, what's on your mind? Oh, well, Trump was just uh, here in the Lehigh Valley for a rally. And at one point he said, oh, those are beautiful trucks over there. I'd like to get in one of them and just get the hell out of here. Yeah, get the hell out. Oh, my God. These people don't even know they're being dissed. What dummies? Oh, this is, you know, he was in Erie, Pennsylvania a couple of days ago. Uh, John Oliver was making fun of us. And he said, you know, if, if I wasn't, if it wasn't for this virus, I wouldn't be coming here to Erie, Pennsylvania. Who wants to come to Erie, oh, Pennsylvania? Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't have been here. That's <laughs> like, really? Yeah, well, apparently he, he, he must have some allergic reaction to Pennsylvania because uh, he said that. Now, now he's saying he just wants to get the hell out of here. <laughs> Oh, amazing. Absolutely amazing. And yeah. I Thank you for that, Mary. Thanks for sharing that story with us. I, I appreciate it. Carla in Brooklyn, New York. Am I saying your name right? Yes, you are. Great. Thank you. What's on your mind? Yes. Well, I had one topic on my mind, but it does relate to Trump trying to appeal to women voters. Mm-hmm. The perspective I wanted to share was in regards to Trump attacking Hunter Biden. I mean, what? What mother would find that appealing 
that you're attacking mm. a vulnerable child, even though he's an adult. Speaking of adults, I don't see why the Democratic Party, we're following a rule book that nobody's following. The rhythm has changed and we're dancing to the same beat. I don't see what the problem would be with him addressing what the Trump kids are doing. They're grifting, they're mm-hmm. stealing, they're exploiting taxpayer resources. And, you know, it would be very simple for Joe Biden to lay it out in just a couple of sentences. Tally up all of the profits they've made and how they've made them. But, Tally but, up but Carla, the if, if he basically says your kids are worse than my kids, isn't that acknowledging that he's got a problem with his kids? If who says your if, kids, my kids. If Biden goes after Ivanka and Don Jr. and Eric, you know, the basic message is your kids are worse than my kids. And if Biden not, basically says that, isn't he ratifying the idea that it's OK to talk about our kids and that both our kids have a problem? You know, the kids thing, wasn't that really meant for because traditionally with presidents, it would be their minor children that it really referenced. I mean, those they're not kids. They're his co-accomplices right. <laughs> and conspirators. I right. mean, we're, you know, those That's true. Hunter children, Biden doesn't and, run and, the family business. Exactly. And they're going after, it's like, what, 20 of them going after Joe Biden, Hunter Biden. They're all engaged in, uh, nobody's divested. They're creating um, an influencing policy that's financially it, it advantageous to them off of the American, um, di- you know, the taxpayers dying. Yeah. It's, it's disgusting. I don't see what the problem would be because, like I said, we're dancing to the same rhythm and it's a different beat. I think, you know, if your political opponent has set out a, a blueprint that they want to engage in, you know, then that's it. And I don't even think he should say, oh, your kids, my kids, you know, your family, look at what's going mm-hmm. on. You know, they're traveling overseas, they're staying at your businesses, traveling, doing business, business overseas. Have, have you noticed, call up, forgive the interruption, we only have 15 seconds left. Have you yeah. noticed that Trump is starting to refer to the Biden crime family? Is, I mean, it's like projection. It's like so much projection, projection, confession. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. It's crazy. Okay. Carla, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you, okay, and I appreciate your, you. your uh, weighing in. Good talking. Thank you. Uh, good talking with you, and thanks again for listening to Sirius XM. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. In the science revolution this week, how does a nation best deal with a leader who intentionally kills its citizens? Also, Kelsey Lamp with Environment America is here reporting on the new American blueprint for our oceans. This could be a sea change. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear drops by on how more Fukushima water is being released into the Pacific Ocean. And in geeky science, how a Green New Deal could save hundreds of thousands of lives. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Erica in Seattle. Hey, Erica, your thoughts? Hey, no, I don't think he can say anything that would convince us to vote for him. He has nothing meaningful to say to us. His brain is stuck in the 1950s. He has no idea about the needs of the modern woman. You know, he doesn't know what our concerns are. Equal pay, free access to health care, access to birth control, the right to choose. I mean, he's archaic. I'm not voting for him. I didn't vote for him before. None of my friends voted for him, and they're not going to vote for him. Yeah, I'm with you. Thank you. Uh, Richard in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Hey, Richard, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? One phrase. The difference between Uh Joe Biden and Donald Trump is integrity. Yeah. 
Well, did you see that the, the, some of these right-wing guys are, are circulating? I saw it on Twitter this morning, and I saw an article yesterday kind of trashing the practice. There's a photo of Joe Biden kissing his son on the cheek. And it's Bo. He's in his military fatigues, as I recall, probably having come, come back from Iraq. And, and Joe is literally kissing him on the cheek. And they're putting this photo out by way of saying, you know, this is too weird. I get it. It's a shout out to this weird, you know, one of these weird conspiracy theories. You know, it's about the children. But what's happening is a lot of people are looking at that picture going, Wow, so the Republicans can't imagine a father kissing his son. And, and you know, you see Trump with uh, Bear on his son, you know, has to f- walk 10 feet behind him and stuff like that. And I think it's actually hurting them, you know, trying to trash Joe Biden for, for being affectionate with his own kids. I, I just, you know, it, I, I don't understand it, Richard. I just don't understand this mentality that, you know, macho men are... You know, they beat their children, but they don't kiss them. I don't get it. What am I missing? I don't know, because my father always kissed me on the cheek, too. Yeah, mine, too. And sometimes on the top of the head when I was a little kid, I remember that. And, yeah. uh, you know, it meant a lot. It was, it was good. Okay, Richard, thank you for the call. Diane in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Hey, Diane, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Thanks for having me on, Tom. And so, you know, I'm responding to the suburban housewife thing. I mean, what is that? housewife he married to the house but anyway i don't even get that but i'm, I'm <laughs> right. going to reply to the lady that was saying you know i know she means well and she's saying biden should call out trump's kids but that's exactly what trump wants if you start to equivocate biden's kids with trump kids if he's already calling biden the biden crime family it's not equal and so if you start calling yeah. his, his kids out you know then it's going to be oh look you know oh yeah we're all crime family and it's not true you know, your, your family is a crime family, right? And so when he yeah. keeps talking about Hunter Biden and there's, there's zero proof of that, you know, everybody else in the whole world can see what his kids are doing. So he, Biden doesn't even have to say anything. You know, it's obvious. We can see it. But when you start going yeah. after the kids, and, then it's, it's starting to equivocate. Both families are crime families, and it's not true. You know? Yeah, it's a false equivalence. I, I absolutely agree with you, Diane. And, and I think maybe probably the most that Biden should say is something like people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Something like that. Something like that. But, but you know, you start calling out the kids and then it's, it's going where Trump wants it to go, right? Because then Trump has free-for-all. He's going to yeah. talk about Hunter Biden and all the stupid uh, uh, QAnon Well, I, I predict you know, he's going to do that no matter what. Yeah. I, Thank I you, agree. Tom. I agree. And, and, the and therefore, I doubt he will. You. Thank you, Diane. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. We know about the, I believe it's 11 Republican senators right now who are up for re-election, many of whom are in vulnerable positions. You know, Martha McSally in Arizona, way behind Mark Kelly, for example. Others that are a lot closer you know, one of the cases, one of the races in Georgia, the, the Lindsey Graham, Jamie Harrison race, stuff like that. We know about those. There are six races that I want you to start thinking about right now, even though they're not going to happen for two more years. And these are the people who have just done abominable jobs in the United States Senate, have been total Trump suck-up lackeys have ignored the rule of law and tradition, and frankly deserve to be voted out in two years. They're not up for, you know, the, in the House, every single member of the House stands for re-election every two years. But in the Senate, it's every six years, and they stagger them. So about a third of the states get, you know, one two-year cycle, a third of the states like this. And so in two years, in Alaska, Lisa Murkowski, who just voted for Amy Coney Barrett, will be up for re-election. In Florida, it's going to be Marco Rubio. In Iowa, Chuck Grassley, if he decides to run again. In North Carolina, Richard Burr is retiring, so there's going to be an open seat in North Carolina. In Pennsylvania, Pat Toomey is retiring, so there's going to be an open seat in Pennsylvania. And in Wisconsin, you've got the Russian intelligence service's favorite senator, Ron Johnson, who keeps repeating their stuff. So get ready. Let's look at some strong candidates who might uh, be able to take some of these folks on. Herb in uh, Middletown, Delaware. Hey, Herb, what's up? 
Hey, Tom, how you doing? I'm a Vietnam veteran, and I've visited the sites of World War II cemeteries in Normandy. I cannot understand how any military person in their right mind, it's astounding to me. But there are. I think her your your phone is breaking up, but it sounded like you said you couldn't figure out how anybody how any military person could yeah. vote for Trump given the way that he has disrespected our soldiers at Normandy and 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 I would add you know at Arlington as well. That's where he said to John Kelly they were at standing at Kelly's son's grave, and he turns to Kelly and he said, "Why did he go? What's in it for him?" Like he can't yeah. understand the idea of service to country. And, you know, Kelly writes about this. I mean, he's, he's the source of the story. He was right there. I'm with you, Herb. I don't understand how anybody with a military background can vote for this guy. It just, it's just beyond the pale. Herb, thanks for the call, and thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Sandra in St. Paul. You're talking about Trump not really running for presidency and setting up a plan for starting a network or a TV show or whatever. Mm-hmm. Isn't he going to be charged and, and sent to jail for all of his crimes? Maybe. I mean, keep in mind, some of these rape allegations against Trump are 10 years old. And there's I mean, they're still in the courts. He has he's got 3000 lawsuits against him from people he's refused to pay, including now the city of Tucson from three years ago when he had a rally there and he never paid the police for it. And he just ignores them or, or procrastinates. So I think he thinks that his lawyers and his appeals and dragging things out and countersuing and everything that he's done successfully for the last 40 years will work for him when he leaves the White House. And they may well. It may well, Sandra. So, you know, I get, you know, I get what you're saying, but don't underestimate the power of somebody who's really rich and has a really good law firm to avoid prosecution. It's huge. Now, you know, our courts are skewed toward rich white men. And so, you know, there he is. Anyhow, we'll see you tomorrow. Same time, same place. Get out and vote and encourage others. Iwillvote.com. Tag, you're in. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.